Would you please remain standing? I'm reading from Luke chapter 2, our passage this morning, verses 1 through 7. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. The Word of God. You may be seated. This is one of the traditional passages of the Christmas story. It's familiar, it's comforting, it's charming. Maybe it brings you back to the first time you heard it and the first time that you began to picture that scene in your own mind. Makes you think of Mary, extremely pregnant, riding on a donkey, with Joseph, who is faithfully plodding alongside with his staff, wrapped in his tunic against the winter cold. Makes you think of traditional songs like, O Little Town of Bethlehem. Or, O Holy Night. It's a feeling of comfort and memories of our own Christmases past. But in this original narrative, there was no Christmas to look back on. There were no happy memories of family or gifts or candlelight services. What I'm trying to say is that we project our pictures, our memories, and our assumptions and our desires onto the original text. And when we do this, some things that are very important go unnoticed. And so my goal this morning is to blow some of these canned, packaged for TV images out of your head when you think of the Christmas story. Now, I'm not trying to ruin your Christmas. I'm not trying to ruin your Christmas. I just think it's a little bit more gritty than we make it. And I want you to look at the Bible with some fresh, critical Eyes. And I want you to see that God has done some amazing things in the midst of some very real, very difficult circumstances. And even as we begin to read the text with a critical eye, we will begin to see some things that we never noticed. And now when I say critical eye, I don't mean a doubting eye. I don't mean criticism and negativity. I don't mean disbelief. God gave us brains. Let's use them. All right, let's think about it. Let's think about what's going on here as we read this. And as we do so, in God's great way, we're going to see the beauty of his glory and his love. Let's bow in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word this morning, I pray that my words would be clear, but most importantly, that you would be glorified in the study of your word. Lord, we thank you that you have cared to speak to us, to preserve your word for our sake. So, Lord, we thank you. And we want to submit our own ideas, our own thoughts, our own agenda to you. So thank you, Father, for the opportunity to gather together. 
Thank you for this beautiful time of year when we share so many wonderful things, family, friends, food, gift giving and gift receiving. God, it's, it's a privilege to be able to do these things. And we don't want to take that for granted. We don't want to take that lightly, but we want to put it in its proper context, Father. So help us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So Luke chapter 2, as we start to look here, even in the first two verses, there are some historical names that are thrown out. And honestly, the timelines don't add up. And we're going to look at that in just a second. You know, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. I don't want to go too far down a rabbit hole this morning, but... Um, This is actually one of those passages of the Bible that skeptics and atheists look to and point to and say, see, you can't trust the Bible. There are historical inaccuracies here, and so you can't trust it. It's just mythology. So I thought it would be important to talk this through at least briefly and examine it in a way that would shed some light and reassure and grow our confidence in Luke's gospel, and more importantly, grow confidence and conviction about the good news of great joy that this story brings to all people, the person of Jesus Christ. So here we go. Right, we're only a couple of weeks away from the end of 2018, aren't we? It's almost over. It's almost behind us, and we are moving into 2019. Well, in Jesus' time... There was no such calendar system, all right? This may be like one of those brain warp kind of things we talk about this morning, but that's okay. No one knew that human history would be dated before and after the birth of Jesus. People usually marked time by the beginning and end of rulers and their things that... uh, happened during their reign. This event happened during the 14th year of the reign of Julius Caesar. Or this event happened in the 54th year of King Manasseh, King of Judah. Those kinds of things. That's how time was marked. And then even at that, the Jewish year was different from the Roman year, which was different from the Chinese year. So measuring time was an interesting difficulty. Until the 500s AD, see we can put it into its place, there was a monk named Dionysius Exegus. He determined how we would date history from the birth of Jesus. In fact, the creation of this system itself was a little bit inaccurate. He got the date of Jesus' birth wrong. So we're a few years off here and there. That's just the way it is. Is your mind melting yet? Okay, well, good. I hope that doesn't mean you're asleep already. (laughs) Wake up. All right. We know some things about history from several different sources. We know How many of you have heard of King Herod? Okay, As you read the Christmas story, King Herod is a very bad guy. He's a bad character. He was the one, Scripture says, in Matthew's Gospel, who killed the babies in Jerusalem, the male babies under two years of age. And we know that Herod died in 4 BC. We know that's when he died. Several different sources. So, based on Herod's death, we know that Jesus was born about 7-ish B.C., 
I have to say ish. Sorry, you know those clocks with one-ish, two-ish, three-ish? This is kind of seven-ish B.C. was when Jesus was born. But here, we also know from history that that guy, Quirinius, the governor of Syria, we know that that census was taken in 6 A.D. Are you getting the discrepancy here? There's a problem. Because Luke's gospel seems to put Jesus' birth story right at the very time of Quirinius' census. That kind of throws things off here, doesn't it? That's kind of weird. So how could Jesus be a contemporary of Herod and have Quirinius' census take place at the same time? Is the Bible wrong? Did Luke just mix something up and accidentally you know, mess up the characters? I mean, Luke really seemed to take care on all his stuff, didn't he? This was a historical record for Theophilus. Remember, we read at the very beginning of his gospel, and he took care with all the details. So what's this about? Well, I want to make this pretty quick because this is where we could get into a rabbit hole, and I'm going to try and skirt it. But to the main point, it is important to know that we have a reliable account because this is the greatest story ever. This is what history is marked by. This is God's story told throughout generations. And we don't want this to be wrong. We don't want to base our faith on something wrong or inaccurate. Well, the solution actually is, um, well, I'm I'm also going to save you all the textual gymnastics that theologians and scholars go through. You're welcome. Um, the solution and the answer is actually quite simple, and it's weird. It's a difficulty in the translation of the word first. It's okay. Uh, the word first is actually a strange little uh, quirk there. The word protos in Greek quite often is translated first, but it can also mean before. Simple change of the meaning. Before. So, All our English translations, every single one, whether it's the New International Version, the English Standard Version, the New American Standard Version, whatever you're using, it's translated first. But it causes this historical trouble. But it also means before. And translating it with the word before resolves the issue. Basically, it would read something like this. This was the census that happened before Quirinius was governor of Syria. Does that not solve it? It solves it. It would resolve the historical chronological problems. And you know what? Quirinius was actually, that census was a very good historical marker. That's the kind of thing that people use. I mean, you could say, as a historical marker in our society, where were you the day JFK was shot? Or where were you on 9-11? Those kinds of things mark history in some ways. And this is what was happening here as well. And so Luke is not being loose with his handling of history or anything like that, and it resolves all that issue. So Luke was being accurate. Our interpretation and our understanding of it can be a little bit flawed sometimes. So think of it before Quirinius was governor. All done. We're done with that. That's it. So an interesting historical difficulty resolved. Uh, You can answer skeptics and atheists in a reasonable way now. Praise God. So let's look at this story. We have some characters. Who's the first character named? Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus is the first 
person named. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Caesar Augustus was an interesting character. He was the great, or he was the, yeah, the great nephew of Julius Caesar. And Caesar Augustus clawed his way to power. He was a military guy, and he came to power by fighting and defeating Antony and Cleopatra. And we know, like many rulers, Roman rulers, he was brutal. He would do almost anything to hold on to his power. Now, his name was Caesar, which was given to rulers in Rome, but Augustus was another title of his. And Augustus is an interesting term. Augustus is actually a term that was only reserved for gods. Only It was a term of um, divinity, meaning holy or revered. And so at Caesar Augustus' death, people were so distraught, they comforted themselves in this way, saying, well, he was Augustus. Therefore, Augustus doesn't die. He must be still alive. He's not really dead. So he was, the Roman Senate declared him Caesar Augustus, lifting him up to a godlike state. And he welcomed that because that's who he was. And this is the character, Caesar Augustus, who set in motion a series of local censuses that also caused people in Jerusalem, in Israel, all over the nation of Israel, to travel to their hometowns. And that's what was going on in this story. It was one of those smaller censuses that happened because of Caesar Augustus. Now we have another character that's actually not here in this text, but definitely plays into the birth story, the Christmas story, and I mentioned him earlier, Herod the Great. And there's a saying, I traveled to Israel in 2008, and uh, our guide told us about a saying about Herod. He came to power like a tiger, he ruled like a fox, and he died like a dog. That's a common saying about Herod the Great. Now, I'm just going to kind of go through those three terms briefly so that you get a picture of who this character, Herod, was. His father was named Antipater, and he was poisoned. And so Herod thought he would be next. So he fled to Rome, being a faithful servant of Rome. And it was there, when he fled back to Rome, that the Senate declared him king of the Jews. And so Herod came back from Rome with a a legion of the Roman army and took over Jerusalem. And it was at that point, 37 BC, that Roman officially became, uh, uh, Jerusalem officially became a Roman occupied territory. And Rome began to take over in that realm. And Herod had almost unlimited power in that region because he was given that power by Rome to rule. Well, he came to power, just kind of swept into Jerusalem and took over. And so he came to power like a tiger. He ruled like a fox. Herod was a political animal. He played all sides. Uh, He appeased the Romans by city development. He built hippodromes and sports complexes in Jerusalem. He built an entire city, Caesarea. This was a port city that, you know, they couldn't do anything with it before, but Herod went in there and created a harbor, and built a city in 12 years, built a complete city from nothing. And so he played to Rome in that way. He was doing it for the glory of Rome because it was a part of the Roman Empire. He appeased the Jews by rebuilding the temple 
on the Temple Mount. And he was even favorable in some ways to the Jewish people because he had a little bit of uh, Jewish lineage in him. He was uh, an Idumean, which means he was a descendant of Esau. He also tried to appease a group of people called the Hasmoneans. They were part of the family of the Maccabees that rebelled. They were the Jewish zealots that rebelled against Rome and, and died at Masada, if you've heard that story. And he did that, tried to appease the Hasmoneans by marrying a woman named Mariamne, who was a Hasmonean. So he tried to play everybody and appease everyone. There were threats to his throne, and he was merciless. He even had three of his sons killed because he just suspected them of a plot to overthrow him. So he played everybody, and he tried to appease everyone, and what that actually meant is that he really pleased no one except for himself. That was Herod. And he died like a dog. He really descended into madness in the later years of his life. The end of his life was filled with paranoia. And this is where we hear about the slaughter of the innocents in Matthew chapter 2. Any threat to his throne was to be destroyed. And so he ordered the execution of the uh, male children two years and under in Bethlehem. It was absolutely something that he would do. And for years, scholars said that there was no evidence for this event. And so they they thought this is just a fabrication. It's just a lie that the Gospel of Matthew made up. It was just ridiculous. But now even National Geographic speaks of it as a fact as they describe Herod's life. Because this is who he was. And Herod knew he was dying. And as I said, he was paranoid that people wouldn't grieve for him either. So just a little bit more insight into his character he hatched a plot. He said he was going to invite Jewish leaders to his hippodrome in Jerusalem. And when the event would start after his death, all those Jewish leaders would be tied up and executed because he thought, if the nation won't cry for me, I'll give them something to cry about. And it'll appear as if they're actually mourning me because they're crying. What a guy, this Herod, right? This is who he was. And then we have this thing called the census. And even though it's not a person or a character, it's this event that caused Joseph and Mary to travel to Bethlehem. As I said, Caesar Augustus declared uh, a whole bunch of local censuses to happen, and this was one of them. And Caesar Augustus set this thing in motion that was prophesied about 500, 700 years earlier. The, the wheels of prophecy being fulfilled. And these are the players behind the Christmas story. And I think it's really interesting looking at these characters, not the traditional characters, Joseph and Mary and the baby Jesus, but these political leaders. It's quite a contrast, isn't it? It's an incredible contrast. Caesar Augustus, given this title of God, and Herod, a man who lived his life as if he were a god. These men wanting to become powerful, wanting to become godlike, striving after it, who did anything to hold on to power. And yet, by way of contrast, here are the traditional characters, Joseph, Mary, the baby Jesus. Joseph and Mary traveling humbly among a myriad of other peasants to register in their hometowns and pay their taxes to the Roman government. Joseph and Mary, 
a young teenager, pregnant, very pregnant, and a young carpenter, two regular people who were chosen by God to raise the Son of the Most High. In this story, we see men reaching up and God reaching down. Men conspiring and trying to climb and to achieve. And God, in his love and in his grace, condescending to meet us. Jesus was born in humility. Almost, it would seem in shame, there was no room for them in the inn. And so they got the barn. And what the barn really was, was just a cave carved out of the rock in Bethlehem, where the animals lived and dwelt. There was no room. And as I look at the humility of how Jesus entered the world, I see his humility as a picture of God's grace towards us. See, human striving is about law. Human striving says, I can do something to to become great. I can work harder. I can achieve greater things and become better. But there's a sense of need about humility, about grace. You see, it's where Christianity began, with a sense of insufficiency. We've got to admit our need before God. And the good news of God's grace is that Jesus comes to those in need, the poor in spirit. You know, humanity strives for something bigger, something greater, something faster, something more. But Jesus calls us to humility. He calls us to lay down our lives. He calls us to humble ourselves before him. And you know what? Humility is, I dare say, the primary marker of a strong faith in Jesus because it's a reflection of his grace. There was a man named Hudson Taylor who was a missionary to China in the 1800s. He was really a pioneer in that mission to China. He was scheduled to speak to a large Presbyterian church in Melbourne, Australia. And the moderator of the service introduced the missionary in eloquent, just glowing terms, just how wonderful he was. He told the congregation all that Hudson Taylor had accomplished in China. And then he introduced him as our illustrious guest. Well, Hudson Taylor stood up quietly and he came to the podium, gathered himself a little bit, and he opened his message by saying this. He said, Dear friends, I am the little servant of an illustrious master. Humility. That's what we're talking about this morning. As we approach Christmas Day, some of us get caught up in gift giving and gift receiving, but we need to remember why. Why do we do all this? It's because we recognize that God has given us the greatest gift of all. His son, Jesus Christ, who was born into flesh to accomplish the powerful and healing work of saving us from sin. He is the powerful and glorious one, not us. No matter how great you might actually be in this world, No matter how great you might think 
you are in this world, God is the great one. And even though he came in the form of a humble baby, born into a carpenter's family, living in an obscure little town, God used this humility and this seeming foolishness to shame those who think they're great, to shame those who think they're wise. 1 Corinthians 1.27 uh, that was on the screen as you entered this morning says, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the things of the wise. Make sure that you give glory and honor where it is due this Christmas. And as we conclude this morning, I want you to walk away uh, from this passage recognizing just a couple things. First of all, that we need to respond to the love and grace of God. If God has reached down to us to communicate a message to us, we need to respond to it. That message is that we are trapped and hopeless and dead in our sins and trespasses. That's what the Bible says. But he condescended to us to take us out of that, to redeem us, to buy us back and give us freedom and forgiveness and hope and eternal life. That's good news. That is the glory of the Christmas story. That is the good news of God's incarnation into this world. And so we respond to his grace and love by repenting of sin and agreeing with him that you know, sin is not the way I should go. It is rebellion against God's way. It may feel good. It may bring immediate and temporal pleasure, but it's not the path of God. And so as we repent and turn away from sin, we turn towards God in faith and believe what Jesus has done for us on the cross, that he bore our sin and the consequence of that as he died on the cross. And when we trust in his work and in the power of the resurrection that he was raised from the dead on the third day, we have forgiveness. We have eternal life. We have life abundant here and now and we can forge a new path walking according to the Spirit, not walking according to our old path and the old human nature that we had been in in sin. That's the first thing. I encourage you this morning, if you have never put your faith in Jesus, to do that. There's a couple prayers in your bulletin. I believe it's the, the second one that is a prayer of faith. Or maybe it's the first one. I don't know. You can read it. <laughs> But there's nothing magical about those words. It's not an incantation of any sort. It's just an expression of someone's heart that wants to receive this gift of love and grace from God the Father given to us in Jesus Christ. Well, the second thing I want you to, uh, to leave with this morning is that God meets us in the everyday stuff. Joseph and Mary were just doing what they needed to do. They didn't understand that this was a point of prophecy that was to be fulfilled, that they traveled to Bethlehem. They were from the north. They were from the Galilee area in Nazareth, and they had to, to travel quite a ways to get there. They didn't recognize, at least right away, what was going on. But it was the everyday stuff, that census, that God met them at that point. Just a semi-regular thing that they did when they were occupied by a global superpower of the time. But I want to ask you, what is your everyday stuff. Is it getting ready for work, taking the kids to school? 
Is it waking up to read the newspaper, having breakfast, you know, in your retirement? Is it going to the gym and exercising? Is it caring for your parents? Is it going to school and learning so you can achieve what God has for you? God will meet you there. No matter whether you're a stay-at-home mom or a teacher or a carpenter, or a police officer, a businessman or woman, a student, whether you're retired, no matter how wonderful or how difficult things may be right now, I want you to know that God will meet you where you are because he cares for you. And he is extending his hand of grace and love to you right now. Will you respond to him this Christmas season? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your message of good news, your message of hope, your message of love and grace towards us is an open invitation to all who would believe. Thank you, Father, for your goodness towards us. Thank you for the promise of your word that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And that we become justified before you. We are set in a right relationship. We are declared innocent of all charges. And God, even more than that, you place us on a path called sanctification. A path where we are drawing closer and closer to you. It's a time where you are chiseling off the rough edges. You are shaping us. You are forming us and creating in us your character. And your goodness, the image of your son, Jesus Christ, we're no longer being shaped by our own desires. We're no longer being shaped by the world and what people think is cool or significant or important from year to year, but what you eternally believe is important and worthy and honorable. So God, for those of us who have placed our faith in you, we thank you for that good news, for that message. And no matter how far down that path we have traveled at this point in our lives, we want to go further. We want to grow closer to you. We want to look more and more like your son, Jesus Christ. So we dare to say, shape us, Lord. Have your way. And Father, for those who are here for the first time this morning, Maybe thinking this is the right time to go to church because it's the Christmas season. God, I thank you for drawing people, not just to crossroads, but to you. It's evidence, Lord, that you're at work in their spirit right now. So I praise you for each person that's here. And I pray, Lord, for those who don't yet know you. I pray that you would reveal yourself to them and that, Lord, your glory would be made clear and plain and that you would be honored in all that's done. Father, we thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. I'm glad you tuned into this podcast message. We'd love it if you came down and visited us in person on Sunday mornings at 1030. 
You can follow Crossroads on Twitter at Crossroads, C-N-C-R-D, as in Concord, and keep up to date with news and events on our Facebook group page. God bless you.